0: Kids, You're Dismissed, that that choir song, I love that song so much because it's a prayer that we all need to be asking, right? We all need to be asking that every day. Fill me with your Spirit. And everything in our lives would be so different if the Spirit had absolute full control of everything. Let me say that again because you might be distracted. Everything in our lives would be so different if the Spirit had control of everything. If we were fully surrendered, fully yielded, fully given to Him, nothing of our own, no pride, no selfishness, no control, no self-will, everything, if it was given to Him and He was in control of our lives, everything would be different. Peter knew that distinction. Peter knew what it was like before. And after. He remembered who he was before Acts 2. He remembered what he had been and how radically changed he was even from being one of the men who walked with Jesus every day for three years and watched him do miracles and heard him teach and watched him go to the cross. He he knew who he was even as that person versus who he was when the Holy Spirit really took control of his life and he surrendered his will. He remembered what it was like. It wasn't that long ago when he had been doing more things in his power than by his desires, than by giving himself to the Spirit. Because even when he was around Jesus, and this is hard to fathom, and yet we know it's true, don't we? Because we have the presence of the Lord in our own lives. Even when he was around Jesus, Peter still had motives and actions that were selfish and were misguided. But now, 1 Peter chapter 2, that's our text of the morning, now he understands now he gets it decades later after jesus has returned to heaven and peter has been doing his ministry along with the other apostles who have scattered around the world to preach the gospel now peter understands and now he writes from maturity and from experience and from confidence and i think if he was here today and he was standing in this pulpit and don't we wish that was happening i know i do Imagine if Peter walked in this morning. What do you think he would tell us? What do you think his message would be for us? I don't think it would be far from this, and I don't think it would be far from what the choir sang. I think he would say, Church, church, the Spirit of God needs your life. I think he would say, Church, understand who you are. Understand what God has done for you. Understand how He has changed you. And walk with Him. You know, when the Lord led us into this building a few months ago, I was so grateful that Anthony delea caught the vision for putting this beautiful stone all along the front of the sanctuary. And he and his family were so gracious and so generous to give the time and materials to, to install that. And of all the things in this building, that's my favorite part. I love the stone. And every time I walk in here, I just am so grateful to the Lord for what he's done. And as I look at the stonework, and I don't know if you've ever come and looked at it really closely, but you can see the skill of the craftsman who took kind of unattractive red paneling, and if you want to see what that looks like, it's on the side of the stairs. But he took unattractive red paneling and he made it this, this masterpiece. He made it this beautiful, exemplary picture of, of craftsmanship. Now that really is a great illustration for our text this morning. And it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you're not there yet, please turn there. Not only because of the stone imagery in the passage, and we'll look at that in a minute, but also because we've been seeing in the study of this book, the title of the series is Becoming. We've talked about becoming disciples who quickly are growing into maturity in our faith and in our walk. Not stagnating, not staying in the same place, not one year to the next. There's really no contrast. But but quickly moving into maturity. And we've talked about abundant reasons for that. We know that the time is imminent, that Jesus' return is imminent, that time is short. The Bible says we can't neglect so great a salvation. We've got an amazing salvation that God has brought into our lives. And people need to know about it. And the Spirit is strongly urging us now to get to work. Not only in terms of reaching people for Christ, but to make sure that the old life that used to mark us no longer has any place. That it doesn't have any presence in our lives and that we're walking in holiness. And that's what we studied, if you remember, and you can glance back at it. That's what we studied all throughout chapter 1. This call to conduct ourselves with fear because we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And he tells us, that should spur us to purify ourselves into holiness and obedience to what the Lord has told us to do. And then we saw that that the great evidence of this is that we sincerely and fervently love each other. Now, Peter finishes those thoughts from chapter 1 here in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Remember, as he wrote, there are no chapter divisions. He didn't say, well, chapter 2, verse 1, I'll begin with, therefore... No, he just wrote this. This was a letter to believers who were scattered throughout Cappadocia and Asia Minor. So he writes them and tries to encourage them and spur them forward. So as he kind of transitions his thoughts here between holiness and love in chapter 1 into chapter 2, this first section, and I don't know how it's divided in your Bible, but I've got the three verses that are separate. This section is kind of both the conclusion to the last section and a transition into the next text. And this is a very interesting text. Kind of functions like bookends. Verses 1 to 3 and verses 11 and 12 are the bookends. They're the practical application. There's where he says, because of all that's going on, this believer is how we're supposed to live. And then right in the middle of that um, kind of bookend of application, he says, I want to bring you back to the reference of prophecy from Isaiah and this powerful reminder of what has happened to us. Think about what's happened to you. Maybe you've been saved so long that, it's, that, that, that you don't really feel the difference between who you are. I got saved at nine, so, so the, the past life, I, I can't, you know, I wasn't like a, a truant when I was six. You know, I've, there's, there's only so much past life there. Some of you have gotten saved later in life. Some of you in the last few years, you know that distinction between the past and the present. So just so we all get it, right here in the middle, we'll study it in a minute. Peter says, look at what's happened to us. Look at what God has done. Let's start. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at this first section of application. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, we've just been shown and called to love each other as an act of fear, fear of not offending the Lord, fear of not displeasing the Lord, who's bought us from sin, who's declared us as His own. So, so now look at the first thing that He says. He's come out of saying, walk in holiness, love each other fervently and sincerely. Now, let's see how we do this. And that's verses 1 to 3. And I want you to notice that the first statement of application that the Spirit makes, and I want you to see where the focus of that application lies. Because verses 1 to 3 are all about personal relationships. And especially how we talk to each other. Not whether we do the dishes, not whether we clean up, not whether we volunteer to help each other out, not whether we uh, take somebody dinner when they're sick. Those are all wonderful things. But he says, here's the real measure of whether you fervently and sincerely love each other. It's it's how you talk to each other. It's what you say to each other and why you say it. How many of you know there's more damage done by that than by anything else in our relationships? How we talk what we say, what we communicate. Not not taking out the trash or not paying the bills. Listen, that stuff is petty compared to this. And think how many times the Lord has been grieved in churches by criticism and by gossip and by cutting remarks. Far more than what music was played. Or did the pastor speak too long? Or is the coffee Starbucks or not? Uh, the, think about the things that we major on. Well, I don't know. The music, I didn't really like that song, and, and, and that guy spoke for, forever. I, I was so bored, and, and they gave me this crummy coffee. But, you know, think of how churches promote themselves. We have Starbucks, and, and, and we're an hour long, and dress in, you know, your bathing suit. We don't care. It's just, just whatever. Imagine if a church says, when we talk to each other, we talk in love. When we communicate with each other, it's sincere and it's loving and it's gracious and it's forgiving. It's not snarky and critical and mean and you won't hear somebody talk about somebody else and you won't hear people have conflict. Imagine, do you know how much a church like that would thrive? You think churches thrive because they have Starbucks. What do you think people out there are looking for this morning? They're looking for a place where when they walk in, they see the presence of God in believers' lives. Peter says that starts with how you talk. The Spirit's instruction here is absolutely crystal clear. There's no room for equivocation. There's no room for debate. It's not a suggestion. It's not, hey, this is good advice. It is a command of the Lord not only to grow into maturity, but to love and protect each other and the body. Now, how does the Spirit tell us to do that? Look at the text. He says, putting aside, the phrase means to cast off or to to throw it away, throw away all, not partial, not selective, not what we want. He says, throw away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, And all slander. Now notice, just for a second, we'll come back to it, that three of them have that extra adjective, all. We'll tell you why in a second. But let's take each word, just for 20, 30 seconds, and let's define it using the literal meaning in the original language. Malice is the intentional desire to injure. Now we would think of that in physical terms, like somebody's going to beat me or stab me, but it's not limited to that. Because it's a desire, it can have a very damaging impact when it becomes a weapon in our relationships. How does that play out? Two primary ways. First of all, what we say to each other. Sometimes we say things with the emotional intent, come on, you know this is true, to injure the other person in some way. Little dig. Little suggestion, little tone, little, little reference to the past when they hurt you. And, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember that, and we kind of joke about it. But, but there's an intent there to injure. The second way it plays out is what we say about each other, committing character assassination and creating doubt, and mistrust. Well, did you know what they did? Did you hear what they said? And uh, this, this is malice. There's an intent there, even if it's passive aggressive, to to injure the person. And it comes out of a heart full of malice. And the Bible tells us right here, get rid of that. Second, he says, is deceit. Deceit is defined as craftiness and stealth. In other words, it is a clever and often well-disguised intention to to be dishonest and disingenuous. It's playing somebody. It's kind of work in the situation, trying to manipulate the truth to, to make ourselves look better and then look worse. It's never accidental. Deceit is never accidental. It is always intentional and deliberate and purposeful. Then he says third, this is getting hard, isn't it? Hypocrisy. That's a word from the Greek theater where the actor would use a mask. We've talked about this before to, to hide his or her true identity. They would play a part and they would wear a mask and hypocrisy is just that. It's being an actor. It's not being open. It's not allowing people to see who we really are. And there's a lot of motivations for that. Some people do it out of insecurity and fear. Well, if they really know who I am, they won't like me. Some people do it out of selfishness and pride. Well, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna let them get close to me. Some people do it because they want to gain advantage, so they use deception and play a part and act a certain way so people will think that they're actually friendly when they're really not, that they're sincere when they're really not. And the worst expression of that is when we act like we really care about somebody. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah, it's great. That's all. And and inside you're going, I really don't like this person. But you know what? I ran into them in the hallway, so I better act nice they yeah, I'm praying for you. Good to see you. Yeah, all right. Let me know if I can help. There's no intention. That's hypocrisy. That makes the Lord sad. Fourth, envy. Envy is jealousy and resentment that someone has something you don't or is something you're not. Envy is deeply rooted in pride. It's the foundation for every sin, and it can quickly turn into bitterness and hatred. Listen, we will never grow spiritually if our heart is full of envy because envy basically is saying the Lord's blessing you, and I'm ticked off about it. Why isn't the Lord blessing me? They're blessing you. I'm resentful of that. Rather than saying what the Bible says, when the Lord blesses somebody, rejoice with them. When God works in somebody's life, praise the Lord, that is awesome. I'm so glad. I want to rejoice with you. The Lord has been good to you. Rather than saying that, we kind of sit back and go, I can't believe that the Lord's blessing them. Why isn't the Lord blessing me? And we start to talk to ourselves and start to feel sorry for ourselves. And I'm going to tell you right now, that attitude, envy, can kill a church. Fifth, we're going to get out of the hard stuff here in a second, all right? Fifth is slander. Slander is literally to speak evil about somebody, to defame their character. Whether it's true or false, the whole intention is to to disparage and denigrate the person and to damage them in such a way that it will harm their feelings or or it will damage their confidence or it will personally uh, and, and spiritually hit their reputation. Slander. Now, that's why when you look at these again, three of these have the word all next to them. Why is that? I asked myself that as I was studying. Why do three have all and two don't? Well, when you look at each one, you realize that the three that have all next to them are the ones that hurt the other person worse than they hurt you. They're designed to do that, and the devil uses them to do that. Hypocrisy and envy, while they can do damage, they really hurt you they hurt me rather than the other person. They they hinder our reputation. They damage us in terms of our spiritual maturity. They're, they're more us-centered. But when we practice the the other three, malice and deceit and slander, those are things that are going to hurt somebody else. So he says, completely get rid of them. Put them aside. That's, that's not casual or temporary like, well, I have this piece of paper and I'll put it over there later and I'll come back to it. It might have some use. You. He, he's not saying, hey, just, if you have malice in your heart, just, just put that aside for a couple minutes. Take a deep breath and you'll be okay. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, get rid of it. Don't let it have any place in your life. Get it as far away from you as you can. If you have deceit in your heart, if you want to slander somebody, get it away from you. And then what he says is very interesting. Look back at verse 2. He says, go back to being like newborn babies. What a strange instruction that seems to be. Now, why would he tell us to go back to being newborn babies? Well, very simply, babies are innocent and they can't talk to prove otherwise. A baby ah, doesn't have any words. It can't slander somebody. It can't show malice. It can show frustration, right, young parents? It can show annoyance, but it can't speak malice. If it has anger in its heart, it can't speak it. All it can do is cry. So he says, go back to being a newborn baby. And the fact that he tells us to go back to something, that elementary shows how much we need to humble ourselves. And notice the role that the word plays. Look back at verse 2. He says it's the pure milk that we should crave. God's Word is what nourishes us and strengthens us and keeps us from pulling these five actions back out into our behavior when we fill our mind with what is pure and what is true and what is holy and what is edifying, as Paul talks about in Philippians 4. When we fill our minds with those things, listen now, these behaviors in verses 1 to 3 will seem outrageous and disgusting. If your heart and my heart is full of the word and full of what is true and full of what is pure and full of what is holy and pure, full of what is of good report and full of what is edifying, when, when, when that malice, when the devil comes along and says, you need to be angry that the Lord's blessing them, we'll say, how can I do that? God's been faithful to me. God's blessed me. God's helped me. Great is his faithfulness. How would I think evil of my brother or sister? Why would I say anything that would harm them? That's my brother, sister, and Christ. We're one together. God has redeemed us. See, those actions will become awful to us because our heart is full of it. And then when we hear it among the body, we'll say, uh-uh-uh, you're not doing that. You're not doing that. And then look at the beautiful rationale that he gives. Put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies. Long for the pure milk of the world so that by it, by the word, you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, as I studied that, I thought that's an odd choice of words. Why doesn't he say that you would grow in respect to to maturity or that you would grow in respect to sanctification, become more holy, that you would grow in respect to the health of your relationships, Why does he use the word salvation? And I thought A.W. Pink, who's a great scholar, if you've ever read A.W. Pink, you know how deep he was. What a great theologian. A.W. Pink explained it this way. It's to live in the reality that we're saved from the penalty, power, presence, and most importantly, the pleasure of sin. The The penalty... And the power, we know that Christ delivered us from the penalty and the power of sin. It no longer controls us. Then he cures us from the presence of sin by the presence of the Holy Spirit. But here's where we struggle. We still like to sin. It's still enjoyable to us. We still find some weird pleasure with sinning. And he says, that's what God wants you to grow in respect to. He wants you to grow in respect to to not loving sin anymore, so that you won't practice sin because you've been delivered from sin. And Peter says, here's how you remember. Look at verse 3. You've tasted of the kindness of the Lord. In other words, if God is willing to forgive you and erase your sins and my sins forever and do what we're going to study in a moment in verses 4 to 10, he says, get rid of the garbage. Cast it off and hunger for the Word of God. Go back for a second. Look at what he's saying here in verse 3. You've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Kindness of the Lord. How has the Lord been kind to you? Come on, stop and think about that for a minute. How has the Lord been kind to you this week? The fact that you're redeemed, the fact that you're saved, is kindness. The fact that you have the Word of God in your hand this morning is kindness. The fact that you get to worship the Lord without fear of reprisal is kindness. The fact that you have a body of believers around you is kindness. The fact that He got you through your difficulties this week is kindness. You and I have tasted it. We've experienced it. We felt it, and he says, you need the word every day because it's what reminds you of that kindness. Listen, you and I need this every day this week. Every day this week, we need to be in this word because it's what feeds us and nourishes us. But but listen, we're probably more concerned about what we're going to eat for lunch today than what we're going to get fed from from the word. We shop and we plan, what, what are my meals going to be this week? And, how am I gonna, and we don't think, what's the Lord going to teach me? How, how am I going to get fed this week? What, what am I going to learn from the Word? The Word is so important. It corrects our thinking and it re our behavior. Well, let's go to verses 4 to 10. Let's try to bring this to a conclusion. Because verses 4, and 10, 4 to 10 remind us of just how important this is. That we fulfill our calling as His children, because the Lord has established us not just people who have been forgiven of our sin, but as people who have been given a powerful identity and an amazing position. And He gives us a great responsibility. Let's touch on this real quick. You're going to need to study this more this week. Coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were not, once not a people, but now you're the people of God. But you, have re- you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Let's take this apart real quick, because this is something you're going to need to study this week. There's so much here. That, that we're just going to scratch the surface of it because it's a deep passage. So take some time to study these verses this week. And I want you to notice all the ways that we're described. There are at least eight magnificent statements here about who we are in Christ. So if you feel insecure this morning, and you feel like nobody likes you, and you don't really fit, and, and, and people don't want to be be around you, listen, The Lord wants you to see the value He's placed on you to save you and make you His own. If you feel weak in your faith and you feel distant from the Lord, He wants to show you the extent to which He's gone to completely transform your life. If you're you're falling for the enemy's deception that as believers you can just take from the Lord without a responsibility to sacrifice and be holy and be set apart from the world, then the Lord wants to clarify your calling again and show a contrast between the old life and the new life. And if you're here this morning and you think all of this is nonsense and the world's way is better than the Lord's way, He wants to show you this morning that man's thinking is futile and His mercy is great. But I'm going to tell you right now, all of this centers on one fact. It all centers on Jesus Christ. His name is only used once, but he's referred to 10 different times, and he's called by Peter the precious cornerstone. That's a reference to Isaiah 28, the precious cornerstone that he's rejected. He is the only way of salvation. As believers, he's our identity and our hope and our confidence and our salvation is based on whether we admit that we are full of sin and cannot save ourselves and that he took those sins on himself and sacrificed them on the cross, and defeated them. And as the prophet said, and Peter reiterates here in verse 6, he who believes on him will never be disappointed. I don't know about you, but I've never been disappointed by the Lord. People let me down. Churches have let me down. The world has let me down. But Jesus has never, ever, ever disappointed me. Ever. Ever. And that's because not only has He redeemed us and transformed us, but look at now, there's one phrase I really want you to see. He has made us His own possession. He bought us with the price of His blood. He bought us from sin. And do we think for a moment that He doesn't take who we are and what we're called to do seriously? He didn't just say, hey Rhodes, I'll save you. Do whatever you want. We'll get you to heaven. It'll be awesome. He says, no, I saved you and redeemed you with my son's blood. I expect you to live a certain way. Don't be complacent about it now, Paul. Come on, it's time to get busy because you're a chosen race. You're a holy priesthood. You're a nation set apart to me. Now, in the Old Testament, that would be a reference to Israel. But we're told that the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles has been broken down. So this applies to all believers now. And verse 10 proves that. It says you weren't a nation before, but now you're the people of God. And here's the most important distinction that we can find. Look at it. It says, have you received his mercy or not? That's the defining question for every person in this room this morning. Have you received his mercy or not? Because here's how mankind views Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a problem in mankind. And it says in verses 7 to 8, that that he was like mankind's like the foreman on a job site, and it picked up this stone, Jesus, and it said, "I don't want that." He rejected him and discounted him and said, "He's a fraud, or he's a good teacher, or he's someone who who will challenge, uh, who who will who will just kind of tell us to love each other and accept each other." No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, "Man is not good to save himself." Man cannot do it on his own. You are spiritually dead because of your sin. But I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. You're dead. You got no hope. I am the way of salvation. But a lot of people don't want to hear that. It's not convenient for them. So they ignore him and they toss him away. The problem is Jesus is not just any stone. He's the stone that holds the building together. He's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone set at the construction of a building. All the other stones are in reference to that stone. So spiritually, here's what that means. It means that everything in our lives is held up against the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. And without him, we will stumble and fall and die because we are short of the holiness of God. But Jesus says, I have come to be the cornerstone so that you can align your life against me and trust me and I will become the strength and the foundation and the source of your faith. And that's where the mercy of God is so spectacular. The sacrifice that Christ made for us, look at the text, brought us from darkness into light, and His mercy delivers us from the penalty of sin and death and gives us eternal life. And now He says to us, you're not dead anymore. You're living stones. You are living stones. You're the proof that God has transferred you from death into life. And the church, this, is a spiritual building. The foundation is Christ. If we ever make Christ not the foundation of this church, we will shut the doors and go home. Jesus Christ is the center of this church. He gets all praise and all glory. We're saved by Him. We study His Word and we live by His power because He's redeemed us and empowered us and He secured us forever as God's children. Everybody say amen to that. Come on, that's good stuff. He is the foundation of this. And he says, I didn't just save you now. I declared you a holy priesthood. You are set apart. You are distinguished by my grace. And you are set apart to love and serve the Lord. And you show that through offering spiritual sacrifices, as the text says. Giving your life and your body and your mind and your desire and your prayer and your praise and your gift. Giving your whole self, To him. That's the calling. Not going to church. Not a read my devotional. No, come on. It's so much more than that. It is giving our lives completely to him. And look at the purpose and we'll pray. Verse 9. He says, so that you and I will proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness to light. The word proclaim means to declare it everywhere and to everybody with praise and celebration. Not, I hope I can get out of it because it's hard to witness. Not, I don't really want to live that way because people will think I'm odd and I'll cut down my social connections because I'm not living like everybody else. No, Jesus says it's time to get away from that. It is time to be unashamed. It is time to be strong. It is time to be open. Because God has redeemed you and declared you a holy priesthood. And now it's time for you to (laughs) declare it to everybody. Church, we need to do that. I need to do that. You need to do that. Declare it to everybody. The validation that this has happened. Is that we live consistently and that our lives match Christ. Look at the last two verses and we'll pray. Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lust, with wage war against the soul, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that is the thing to which they slander in which they slander you as evildoers, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We're described as aliens and strangers in this world. Both words mean that our citizenship, our residency, is not here on earth. It is in heaven. We are children of God, not children of the world. I didn't ask her, but I'm going to say it anyway. When Bettina Foley became a U.S. citizen a couple weeks ago, she renounced her original citizenship from Denmark. She is no longer recognized anywhere in the world as a Danish citizen citizen because now she belongs to this country her allegiance is to the United States and even though she was born in Denmark and used to live there when she goes back she will be considered a foreigner now look back at 1 Peter 2:11 just for a second we once were citizens of this world we were born here we were marked by sin and death and everything that waged war against our soul but now because of Christ We are no longer citizens of this world and we have renounced it and we have changed our allegiance and our loyalty and we are now seen as foreigners to sin. It doesn't belong to us and we don't belong to it. Our life is past and we have new life in Christ. So Peter says, as foreigners now, as aliens, abstain from flesh. The word abstain means full resistance, no participation. And that's so key to our witness because people are going to criticize us and they're going to accuse us and they're going to say that we're not real. But when we abstain from our old self and live in holiness, the Bible says people are going to look at you and they're going to say, praise the Lord, he's changed that person. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know why, but God's done this. How we talk, how we live, will convince people that we are authentic in Christ. Listen now, this is my last statement. How we talk and how we live will convince people that the work of Christ is authentic. Far more than conformity. Being like the world will never convince them that Christ is real. Being like Christ will convince them that this is true. You are living stones. Holy, self-sacrificial, joyfully proclaiming that the mercy of God has changed your life. What a great calling that is, isn't it? Aren't you so glad? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what you have done We pray now that you would do a fresh work in our midst, Lord, that you would empower us and strengthen us for what is ahead. The world is getting darker. Your return is any day. And you have saved us and declared us to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, people who are your own, your own possession. What a statement that is, Lord. Now we pray as we leave this morning that you would empower us to live that way. Lord, strengthen us. Give us courage. Give us confidence that we can walk according to your word and according to your will. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit strengthen us for the days ahead. We thank you and praise you, and we declare that we love you this morning. Lord, you have done so much, and we're so grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen.